Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Petko Stoyanov and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host... Petko Stoyanov. I know. I was doing the dramatic pause, Petko. It's short of the drum roll. <laughs> you know, you know some, sometimes I just get ahead of myself. It, it's, you know, in cybersecurity, you always go for talking to the CISO. And today we have an, a great guest that gives us not just security, but the bigger IT, the budget, everything. And has been in government for, I, I almost wouldn't say 10, 30, 40 years. It feels like, you know, they know the ins and outs of everything and been part of everything. So looking forward to our conversation today. Absolutely. Well, let me let me jump into it and introduce Maria Rote. She's got 40 years of civil service experience, most recently as Deputy Federal Chief Information Officer. She's also served as a Small Business Administration Chief Information Officer, uh, where she led the organization's digital transformation to a more proactive and innovative enterprise services organization responsive to the business technology needs of SBA program offices and my favorite, small businesses and entrepreneurs across the United States. Such a critical role. Um, there's so many other accolades and achievements, Maria, but I'm going to go ahead and just say welcome to the podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I'm just happy to be here. Awesome. So, Pekka, do you want to start off? Because I, I know you're really excited to, to talk to Maria. I'm always excited, right? Yes. I mean, I think we're both always excited. Some of the guests we get and, you know, it's kind of funny. I've been in government on and off and it's just always insightful because I always spend on the cyber. But Maria wrote, you've been on, I would say both sides of security, non-security, budget, everything. In in your 40 years, what's the most memorable thing that comes out that you kind of, that for you? Uh, you know what, just looking back overall, um, it's interesting because I, I don't know that I've ever done the same job twice. Um, I've been in tech and in, in computers and tech and before it was called IT and cybersecurity. I've had so many different roles over the years that, and, and I, I can truly say I've never done the same job twice, never had the same title, always did something different or one off as I moved from one job to another. And so if you ask about something that's memorable, I think, you know, just to be able to navigate through that and do different, so many different things over the years and the opportunity, certainly the federal government gave me. I hear you recently retired from the federal government. What are you up to now? Um, I, uh, I took some time off. I, I really needed it. I had um, uh, some tough years, you know, as the deputy federal CIO coming in in the middle of the pandemic and working through transition as, as the SBA CIO before that and other jobs before that. So I've been running hard for quite a while. And what I did was the first thing I did was take some time off. Um, Definitely took some time off, uh, did some hiking, um, took some vacation time, spent a couple of weeks in Maine doing nothing but, you know, hiking around. And it's it's really been terrific. But I did hang out my shingle um, a few months ago, and I'm doing a little bit of work behind the scenes, um, both um, some board work, some strategic consulting work, as well as uh, working for a couple of nonprofits. Um helping them, one of them, vetsports.org, helping veterans. I've been working with them for a number of years, recently joined the board, and uh, working with another small nonprofit in the county here where I live that provides IT and cybersecurity work to other small nonprofits. So 
Uh, definitely keeping busy. I am not working full time and I'm still getting in some hiking and a bunch of vacation time. I'm glad you've had the chance to disconnect a little bit and, you know, at the same time, find ways to, do. you know, do we really ever retire if you think about it? We always have to keep our minds active. And it sounds like you went right back into it and said, I want to keep active and still give back to government in some ways. You know, we were talking earlier about some of the programs and especially like you were, you were the federal CIO, deputy federal CIO, and also worked in DHS after 9-11 got founded. One of the areas that you brought up was really interesting to me is this, the TSA Secure Flight Program. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I was. Um, uh, I started at TSA in in 2004, so this was right after DHS stood up, right? So the 9/11 Commission stood up DHS, put all these you know agencies departments together under one big umbrella. So I started there, and I was the um, deputy uh, under the Secure Flight Development. So the development of the Secure Flight Secure Flight Program. CAPS-2 had gotten killed. That was um, around privacy, right? When people fly, the premise is what information do you um, need to collect? What are the minimum data elements to show that you are who you say you are? So that was one of the projects. And it was actually in, um, in part of the appropriations language for TSA to say, okay, CAPS-2 got killed. We're standing up Secure Flight do your homework and do the math and figure out what the minimum data elements are. So going back, this is 2004, 2005. Um, and it was really, I, I ran this project and um, Congress gave us uh, uh, essentially 90 days to say, figure out what the minimum data elements are. So we actually hired this company, um, uh, mathematicians, huge mathematicians and what they did was they dug in on how, what does it take to fabricate an identity? What are the minimum data elements? What do you need to fabricate an identity? You know as well as I do, right? You go to a Target or somewhere and they ask for your zip code. Guess what? That's not required when you go to the store and you just gave them an element of your identity. So now they have your name with your credit card and they have and they, you can figure out where somebody lives. So there's a lot of elements into fabricating an identity, not just, you know, stealing somebody's information online, but there's a lot of little things you can put together. But what are those core things? And what this company did, and this was really fascinating because they used Bayesian math, high-level math, a lot of data, and really dug in and looked at those common elements that people have, right? Your name, your address, your date of birth, anything that covers you as an individual, and what really came out of that program was, um, and Congress actually extended it, so it was a six-month program because they were so interested in, in what we were coming out with. But what it came down to is the core element to start with is your name and date of birth. Your first name, middle name if you have one, and your last name and your date of birth. If that matches up, you're through the first gate. And, and with that, um, there was a lot of work going on with the terrorist watch list that was getting built out. How do you match and what do you need? And you have to be able to do this very quickly. Um, and there was a lot of um, conversation because those elements are not only used for domestic travel, but think about when you travel internationally, right? So CB, CBP has the mission dealing with the air care, with the um, carriers, right? The aircraft, the the airlines and the carriers dealing with international travel and TSA has the security piece for domestic travel. So we work very closely with CBP, but 
we had to bounce everybody up against a watch list. Um, and we started with name and date of birth um, as, the, as the minimum data element. So it was actually kind of cool to be able to do that, to run the testing, to build you know, all the test decks and really use the data um, to really show that it was your name and date of birth um, that were the minimum elements needed to prove who you are. It was actually a really cool project. I worked on that um, for a little while in a lot of congressional interests. Like I said, they extended the project from 90 days to 180 because after CAPS 2 got killed, there was a lot of sensitivity. And in partnership with that, there was the redress program. If you were you know, designated a terrorist or something, you know, how do you say that this isn't me? So there was a lot of other work going on in parallel to this as well. I'm still thinking about 90 to 120 days, just how fast government can move when it wants to move, if you think about it. And oh, you have no idea. I mean, I mean, we ran this project, uh, you know, the appropriations language said, go do this, get it done now, it's due in 90 days. And then they were so interested in the report, they extended it so that we could actually um, do even more validation around it. So the government can move very quickly and very fast when it wants to. This makes me think about, uh, I was reading this awesome interview with you, Maria, we were talking about it earlier. Um, and But it, it makes me think of this, this comment you made about, you know, when you think about these projects and programs, there's the one-year funding and then there's the multi-year funding. And I, I thought that was a really good observation from you. And, and how do you kind of bring something to success? And I, I would love for you to kind of talk a little bit more about that because it's in all your years of experience and having worked with these significant programs, it's got to make such a huge difference. And, and how do you get that multi-year funding sometimes commitment? Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it's important for your listeners, right? Um, the federal government, it, it doles out money one year at a time, Right. And if you're in a continuing resolution and you don't get your budget in October, well, then you're getting a trickle of funding up until the time that Congress figures out that, you know, here's what your agency's or department's budget's going to be. So we're in these one-year cycles, and if you're in a continuing resolution and you don't know what your final budget's going to be, say, until May, uh, June, you're already six, seven, eight, nine months into a fiscal year then all of a sudden you're like, oh, we have more than we thought we were going to get, or we have less and we have to adjust. And then the fiscal year ends in September. So as a little background, that's what, you know, as a CIO, that's in an agency, that's what you're working up against. And the hard part is how do you manage sustained, continuous modernization and doing new things knowing that you don't have a budget and you can't do anything new while you're in a continuing resolution. You have to live within a certain small amount of dollars that really pays for uh, and affect your lights, right? Keeps the lights, keeps the water running, those kind of things. So you have to get really, really creative. Um, I will tell you that I'm, I'm pretty creative um, and I learned to work within that um, and how to make sustained, continuous modernization. When I went into the SBA, they were more than ten, more than a decade behind in their technology, for example. And how do you take this continuing one-year budget cycle and do a thing? So when I came in in October of 2016, my budget was already baked by my predecessor. So I had to live with it for a year. And so that first year, I was doing planning for the next year and then the following year, doing the what ifs and what could I do. Um, I will tell you that, that 
you know, getting creative requires, you know, when you have 30, for example, 30 different um, cybersecurity tools, and you look at all those and you go, why do I have all of those? And then you look at the overlap and you look at all of them, you start cutting. And next thing you know, you have $5,000, $10,000, $50,000. And I'm going to caveat this, SBA's budget was a rounding error when you compared to some of the big agencies like DHS. But working within that, you can get really creative because next thing you know, if you have $50,000 or $100,000, you can do some kind of operational pilot to really get something kickstarted. And that was really how we tried to be creative with our budget within the constraints. But I also kept a wish list so that if a a continuing resolution kept on and then all of a sudden there was available extra funds from the agency, maybe another program elsewhere in the department didn't do something and I could benefit by it. I always had a list of about 20 things that said, if 50,000 or 100,000 or a million dollars or $2 million landed in my lap, what would I do with it? And I always had a running list and I had task orders and contracts and knew what I needed to do so that if money landed very quickly, I could move. And I also had to compete, not with just the agency's mission, but also with broader federal government mandates, right? Um, Just pick your mandate across the federal government. So I had to balance what was best for my agency and my mission while keeping aligned with whatever IT and cybersecurity mandates were coming along. So being in that budget cycle of one year is really, really hard. And I think the Technology Modernization Fund um, gave some opportunities um, for me to have a working capital fund where I could take one-year money. Um, and this, this requires, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but the appropriators on the Hill, could we could turn that one-year money into three-year money. And then the next thing you know is I could actually do some strategic planning because you know as well as I do in technology, plans change. You know, you can have a target and it says in three years we're going to do X. That's great. But how you get there may zigzag and shift over time. And having that flexibility of money over three years um, gives you, affords you the flexibility to be able to, to maybe it's, you can zigzag a little bit as technologies change, but you're still shooting for the same target. I like the creativity. It's it's almost when you have those kind of constraints that you are able to think about, you know, and I, I, sometimes I think more constraints makes you get more creative and more innovative, um, you know, to, to get things done. And, and I, I just, I, I love your thinking and, and all the things that you've been part of, like the CEO CIO council pilot, and you talked about pilot programs, so critical. I, could you share with our listeners more about this, uh, the CIO council? Cause I, I just love the communications and I, I just love everything that came out of that. Yeah, the CIO Council. Um, so, of course, the federal CIO chairs it. Um, and there's also a vice chair, one of the CIOs from the agency. But the CIO Council is a group of federal CIOs from all the big agencies, right? So the 24, we call them CFO Act agencies, um, come together uh, once a month. And underneath the CIO Council, there's a couple of committees. There's a Workforce and Innovation Committee, which I shared, and another one that's around um, uh, shared services, infrastructure, and the like. And um, the CIO Council is really can really move the needle in the federal government around technology. There's a lot of power that's there uh, within the CIO Council. Because if the council comes together and you get a group of all the big CIOs from the federal government and you want to do a thing, 
you can actually use that power to move the needle on something, whether it's, you know, a guidance across the agencies or, you know, going to the Hill and briefing, you know, your congressman saying the CIO council is making a recommendation. We want to, you know, help you or shaping bills um, and law that comes out of um, that comes out of Congress. Um, so the CIO council has a lot of power to be able to work in, in many of those things. And as a CIO and a CTO, I worked on some pilots um, and really pushed the needle, took a little bit of risk um, on some items that were then adopted federal wide across the government, because you show the CIOs, you show the agencies what's in, you know, the realm of possible. And next thing you know, you can really move the entire federal government. So this is where the power of the CIO council lies. And then for the committees, um, really driving change around hiring for the entire workforce rather than agency by agency. And then the innovation committee, we did um, several years ago when I was a chair, we did some um, primers for the CIOs because quantum computing, right? Knowing that quantum computing is right on the horizon and, you know, the the encryption algorithms um, were going to be impacted, right? All about cybersecurity. We did some primers for the CIO and said, these are the things you need to start paying attention to now because in 10 years, this is coming around. And how do you set yourself up now for the look out over the horizon of 10 years to really set the stage because if you've got, while you're doing new systems, new programs, you know, now zero trust, but if you still have some legacy capabilities, legacy systems out there, you know, though, and you're using, you know, the encryption methodologies that you're using today are not going to hold up in 10 years. So the council was able to drive a lot of that and not just use, use primers. How do you take that primer and then take it to the next level and say, okay, get that into a budget so that you can get some of the modernization done. So I'm throwing a lot of things out there, but it's not just one lever. There's a lot of levers that, that really move things yeah. in the federal government. Maria, I was thinking it would just be, you know, shared sharing practices, but all of a sudden you just said, no, we're doing pilots together. We're buying together. It's, you know, it took it to a whole other level. That's amazing. Yep. You know, what are some ways, I mean, at CIO Council sounds it's so efficient. I'm curious, what are some ways that you can see it improving or it evolving in the future? Um, well, for the council, well, I wouldn't say just the council, but just technology, right? So you've got the council that's really leaning in and where we need to go as a federal government. Because um, you've got zero trust, all the work that's underway right now as agencies are continuing in, raising the maturity. And with the council... Um, it's, it's taking, you know, the CIO's responsibilities and authorities and what needs to happen to the next level. So, so the CIO, you know, never, when you go back in history, the CIO didn't have a seat at the table. The CIO has a seat at the table for the most part now. So how, what can the CIO council do? So this is a question, right? What can the CIO council do to continue to influence and maybe for FATARA, which is the law, um, and Klinger Cohen before that, that gave the CIO a lot of authority. What else does the CIO really need authority on by law where the CIO council can, can really um, uh, continue to build on that? And we know that there's a lot with the workforce and as technology changes, data, data analytics, um, and the CIO's seat at the table and working with the CDO, right, the chief data officer and others, 
And I'll tell you, the CIOs um, across the federal government, they really have a unique seat at the table. Um, and they're not only technical people, they are business people. So I've talked about the budget and some of that, but really understanding the mission of that agency and how the pieces and parts work together within that agency and department and bringing in a lot of the data. And I'll give you an example on that. So as the CIO of the SBA, there were 18 counseling programs, counseling small businesses. And every counseling program collected information around the small business and where they're located. And when you look at the elements across all of those counseling programs, more than 80% of the data elements are the same. And so when I talk about the CIO having a, a view across the organization, not only did I have to understand the counseling programs, but when I dug into the data, my folks dug into it, more than 80, 85% plus of the data elements are the same. So how do you take that and turn that into a vision of, this is the business part, right? How do you take that into a vision of the life cycle of a small business every time they touch the, the small business administration? So this was my driver in not talking in technical terms, but in business terms. And I think this is where the CIOs have a unique seat at the table and then when I fleeted up as the deputy federal CIO, I could see across the entire federal government and the enterprise and how agencies connect to each other and how they share information and data across. And so, you know, to your question about, you know, what else can the CIO council do? They're doing a lot already with the information sharing. And, you know, certainly from my seat as the deputy, seeing the interconnectedness of the federal government um, to really be able to drive change and ultimately serve the citizens better. Maria, it's, it's, when you start, when you're talking about the business side of it, I, I can't help but think about the security side. It's just my mindset. And, you know, when you're deputy CIO, federal CIO, you saw a lot of cyber attacks. How do you balance the business with the risk of things like sunburst and colonial pipeline and log for log for J log for show? Like, when you hear those things and your CISO comes to you, you've got balanced budget, the business, and the CISO is like, I've got this incident. What's the first thing that goes through your head? Like, what do you think about? You know, as we were really, as you drive modernization, right? Digital, you know, use the terms you want, digital transformation, modernization, what have you. Um, cybersecurity has to be built into everything that you're doing. You have to build it in. And in a world of cybersecurity, um, sometimes you have to think outside the box and take risks, right? As you're building technology, you need to have the CISO with you as you're really pushing the envelope, and you need a CISO that is open to taking risks. I'm talking about prudent risk here, <laughs> but really being able to lean in. So the CISO it absolutely has to be a partner in everything you're doing, whether it's governance, right? That's the policy and the money and all of that. But making sure that the CISO also has a seat at the table with you because they have a really strong voice. You know, at the SBA, I was running a bank. Think about it. Billions of dollars. I was running a bank. Think about my view as a CIO with my CISO. Um, as we ran a bank with billions of dollars in loan guarantees and grants and the CISO, you know, really being able to lean in and understand the entire 
um, not just the architecture, not sitting back waiting for an event to happen, but being proactive, right? I had a threat hunt team that focused on the financial sectors, a couple of people, and I got reports every day about what was going on in the financial sector, paying attention to, you know, certainly broader cybersecurity, but with a lens towards financial cybersecurity and what's going on in the financial institutions. So the, the you know, uh, the CISO absolutely is a partner and in lockstep with me um, as we were really driving change and modernization. And even now, when you look at the federal government, a lot of agencies were way ahead on the zero trust architecture, but the maturity level across the federal government varied. Um, some agencies were way further ahead than others because zero, zero trust is not like a one and done. It's a continual evolution. And it's not just we're going to build an architecture and after four years, we're going to be done. You're continuing to evolve in what that architecture looks like. And there's many things that go with it. The CISO is absolutely a part of that and really bringing up the continual maturity across the organization. So, um, uh, you know, I like my CISO to be a risk taker with me, prudent risk. Um, <laughs> I thought that was always really good. And being able to just lean in and build security into everything you were doing, that we were doing as we, um, as we were really trying to drive change. Can I just make a quick comment, Maria? I, I love everything you're talking about, because it's such a great example of, you know, you, you, you get into the government world, the government system, if you will, and you, you get a lay of the land and you're like, okay, these are the cracks in the system that we can absolutely improve and, and, you know, improve it from the inside out and, and come up with these fantastic programs and, you know, cross-agency communication, data sharing, verification, validation of data, breaking down silos. And I, I just love to hear, you know, these stories, because it can be done. You just have to be creative and and, and want to try new things and take the prudent risk and, and look what can happen. Yeah, I'll tell you what, working, you know, uh, so many years in the federal government, there are things that I did in the federal government that would just never have happened in the private sector or where the federal government was um, uh, ahead of the private sector. I mean, I'm going, if you go back to the 90s, I was running a global enterprise network and running network monitoring on a global scale. And that was in the mid-90s. Now, mind you, it was a hodgepodge of tools and stuff, but we were watching all the routers, the switches, and we were actually looking at data when, you know, we had the most traffic and things like that. So definitely a network nexus. But, you know, even to now in the federal government, where, uh, think about NASA, right? They're using AI, the astronauts' gloves, right? It takes several hundred hours to inspect the data for to make sure that an astronaut's glove is what it should be, right? There's no flaws in it, anything like that. And, and the work last year that they did, they did a little pilot and they took the data and put it up in the cloud, leveraged AI, put some algorithms on it, and it took about five seconds to do what took all these man hours. Who gets to do that? You don't get to do that anywhere but in the federal government. And that's what's always kept me working in the federal government. I mean, working at the Department of Transportation, it's all about safety. But think about the data that you work with from all the states that bubbles up from pedestrians to um, uh, buses to cars to tractor trailers to railroad, you know, trains, every mode of transportation, who gets to work on that, that's just sheer scope and 
volume of working with the states. And this is really where I think um, the federal government really doesn't do a good job talking about all the great things that it does and what you can do for the public um, working for the agency. I just, I think that's a huge miss. Um, I always did because I got to work on so many cool things across the federal government that some of them would have never been done in the private sector or where the private sector copied what the federal government was doing. People just don't hear those stories enough. At all. At all. Yeah. That's, that's a shame because yeah. there's always that perception that government's lagging and it's, it's really not, not, not the case remotely. And the scope and scale of which government works too is number of employees and offices and organization. It's astounding. It, it is. It's, it's huge. And the impact you can have with the mission that you're working on. I mean, think about the Paycheck Protection Program, how much money we pushed out. Um, you know, people focus on the flaws. Yes, I admit that there could have been things done better, but boy, we had to move fast and we did what we could moving fast. But uh, I mean, you see these stories over and over again across the federal government. And I think um, it, we just we just need to talk more about things. I mean, I'll give you another example. Um, uh, with the Technology Modernization Fund, with the money that was in there, the Department of Labor took on um, think about the farm workers that come in in the summer, right? Seasonal workers, farm workers that come in, and they have to apply for a visa. Well, that entire process was very manual, very hard to do, paper-based, mailing things around. Well, the CIO at the Department of Labor said, you know what, enough of this. Um, and he got some money through the Technology Modernization Fund, and it took working with USDA, right, because of farm workers, um, the State Department, right, of course, because of visas, Department of Labor, because it's labor, and then USCIS, Immigration and um, Citizen and Immigration Services. So those four agencies were able to come together and work out that entire visa process for the farm workers where it didn't take more than 30, 45 days anymore. They could do the entire thing in about a day. Um, but it took, this is where the federal government is an enterprise and agencies coming together, um, that, that interconnection and making something happen for the benefit of the American public. Because think about getting the farm workers in, the seasonal farm workers, and being able to get the crops out for the Americans. Yeah. Why don't, why don't we hear more? I know, you just don't yeah. hear enough about these stories and it's, it's, it's a lot of goodness. I don't know. I can't help but think you're a great advocate for just what you can do in government service, in public sector service in general. If you just go, you know, follow the mission and find some cracks on how to leverage it and look for I know, leverage. You just, I think we need more people like you. In, in yeah, you can, you can actually be super creative in government despite some of the bureaucracy. But if you know how to manage that and work around it, you can get some stuff done. And, and certainly I proved out that you can do something by finding money in the couch cushions and doing something with, you know, even twenty-five dollars or $50,000. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel a book coming together, Maria, <laughs> like of all this great experience. Any, anything, to, anything to share yet or no? <laughs> uh, yeah, no. <laughs> I never even thought about writing a book, but it's, uh, it's been a fun ride for sure. Um, I, I guess it's just, you know, the federal government, I see the federal government as this big enterprise and this big ecosystem, right? A system of systems, not just technology, but a system of systems. And there's so much you can, you know, that can be done to move the needle. And 
we saw how fast the federal government could move um, with the pandemic, right? And when the CARES Act hit and others, I mean, we got bureaucracy out of the way. There were projects I was working on that I had planned out, you know, 12 and 18 months. And and when the pandemic hit, I was like, oh, nothing like a good crisis. And I'm going to take advantage of this because I need to. I need, it's not, I'm not taking advantage of it because, just because I'm doing it intentionally for a purpose to get the money out and be able to respond to the small businesses um, across across the nation. So I was able to move those plans forward very quickly and very fast. And I can't say enough about my team, um, who is just incredible that, that made all that happen. So in the federal government, you can move fast and you can get bureaucracy out of the way and you can do something very quickly. And I think that's the beauty of it. That's been great. I love that you're also taking the time to kind of help small businesses, uh, you know, being on boards and giving back. I mean, clearly you've got so much background in history that you can help find, you know, as you put money in the cushions and everything else and help solve problems. I'm uh, curious, what's been the most rewarding part since you left government? I mean, oh, since I left government. Wow. Um, uh, (laughs) Great question. Uh, you know what? That's a, that's a great question. It's just been a few months since I hung out my shingle, but I think, you know, a couple of the small businesses that I'm working with, um, you know, really helping them because sometimes they're just chasing, chasing contracts, but thinking through, well, what is your strategy? You know, I, I get that sometimes you can't plan out for two years as a small business, but what are you going to do this year? And what's your message? You know, I, uh, I recently chopped on a, um, executive summary, uh, for a, um, somebody who was responding to, a, you know, an RFP request for a proposal. And I, and I looked at it and I said, what is your message? You're trying to cram all your past performance into an executive summary. That is not going to be your message. Um, and I said, if I was the CIO reading that, I would just like flip to the next page and move on. So, you know, providing some realistic uh, grounding feedback, but I'm also, um, you know, giving, you talk about giving back, you know, working with the nonprofits. Um, I'm working as an election judge. I work the primaries as well as the general election. Um, So trying to give back um, in my local community where I've never had, you know, been able to do that because I've been too busy working. Um, You know, where I'm in Frederick County in Maryland, they've got a Tech Frederick organization and they had the tech games. And I rounded up some, uh, Friends of mine, um, colleagues, former colleagues, and we put a team together, you know, and I know they live in Frederick County and I know that they're very busy going to D.C. and doing other things. But I pulled them in a little bit to uh, to do some Frederick County stuff. So trying to do a little bit of local stuff as well as some of the vet sports, which is just, a you know, a wonderful organization for veterans and sports. I love that. And can we also talk about, too, it's a you, you have this wonderful perspective of kind of, you know, different thinking and innovative thought. And, and how do we get more of that into the industry, getting more diverse thinkers into, into government and, and some of these key roles? And, you know, not only women, but just people from different backgrounds and cultures and who are maybe coming into technology or security. Like uh, we had someone on the podcast who was a PhD in medieval history, Maria, and, and now is this, you know, doing this great work with OWASP. So, you know, there's there's a lot of goodness there, but how do we get these people to to see the opportunity. Yeah. A um, couple things. One, the books start with why, right? Why, why do we do what we do? But I think that, 
Um, I bought that book for my entire staff um, at one agency I worked at. I bought it for everybody. Um, and, and, and we went through the innovation curve, by the way. I wanted to know where they all sat because I know that I'm on the leading edge. And they all thought they were. And I'm like, no, no, you guys are a little further on the other side, but um, a little bit off topic. But, you know, um, when people talk about, oh, I want to go work in IT or I want to work in cybersecurity, um, that the business of of IT and cybersecurity is so wide. You can get somebody, you talked about, you know, a professor or their degree in medieval studies. Is that what you said? <laughs> medieval history, history right? yes. But um, think about, I, I challenge people to think a little bit differently because I know there's been, you know, a lot of focus on, oh, we got to be a coder. I'm a terrible coder because I don't have the patience to sit still that long. Um, and but there's other things you can do if if you like digging in and and looking at data or you're a really good network person. If you're a good network person and you're a really good troubleshooter, um, you know part of that is cybersecurity. What's going on? So you really people really need to think about what they're good at, not just in terms of well, I know about the bits and the bytes and I know this, that, and the other thing. Great, but you know, do you have the skills or the competencies to really be a, an, an analyst, right? Do the analysis. I talked earlier about the threat hunt teams. That requires digging in and looking around and putting puzzles together. Are you, are you a good puzzle person? Are you somebody like me who likes to build things? You know, I always said I'm in the construction build business. You give me a thing and I'm going to build something. Um, I can do that and, and I can take, you know, something that's way behind and build something. And I encourage people who, you know, coming out of the military, you know, maybe you're a mortarman and you like to blow things up. Well, guess what? As part of being a mortarman, you need to know some math and you need to know some math skills and you need to know how to target, right? Think about that and how does that apply to a job that's looking for somebody that needs some math skills or some analysis? So I encourage people to think a little bit differently um, about what their skills are, because somebody who's a mortarman can say, well, I can't do cybersecurity. I would, I would beg to differ that says, if you're coming out of the military, um, you already know how to build a team, you know how to work in a team, because even as an E1, um, you were put in charge of field daying something. So you've got all of those soft skills already. And then the other 10 or 20% is you're a mortarman and you understand math and you know how to target. Well, we can use that because we know that most of the skills of a job is being, you know, part of a team and the soft skills, then we can hone your technical skills. Um, so there's, there's a lot there in, in not just saying, well, I have a degree in network engineering. Great. Well, what can you do with that? Are you a troubleshooter? Do you build networks? Are you, you know, into the cyber, you know, and cybersecurity itself is, is so wide. It's so much of it's like interest and aptitude. Too really, I mean, you can you can apply skills. You know, you you just have to find some interest in it. And we were talking to a couple of uh, fellows from CISA, and they were talking about their recruitment. And it, it's really interest and aptitude. You know, if 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 you want to dive in, we'll help give you you know some of the needed skills to be successful. But you you gotta want to do it and learn and and be curious. Yeah, is a lot there's, of it. There's a yeah, there's a young man I'm talking to. I just reviewed his resume, and um, I'm going to be talking to him shortly. And he's a drone operator in the uh, in the army. He's a drone operator, and he's very skilled. His his video gaming gave him a lot of expertise. 
But, you know, he was deployed to Afghanistan, and it's the big drones, and he was able to bring one in for a landing, you know, that nobody else was able to do, and without damaging the aircraft, and he's got his drone wings, but he wants to get in cybersecurity. But I looked at his resume, and I was like, eh, okay, we need to work on this, because he's coming out of the military with all this experience around drones and how they operate. I'm like, well, okay, you want to get into cybersecurity, what area? So I'm asking, I will be asking him shortly, a whole lot of questions and working on his resume to really re-vector that a little bit. I love that you brought that up because it's it's kind of come up here too. We have a government business here and a lot of former military. Um, You know, in in a military, it's so, I say prescribed day to day. I mean, you know what you're doing and, you know, you have these things. But when you come out of the military, um, a lot of folks have expressed, you know, I'm not not sure what's next. And and how do you apply all these great skills that you got in the military, to your point, to like a cybersecurity career or other career? Um, And and I love that you're bringing that up because a, a lot of people, they need a mentor. They need someone to help help them kind of reframe the experience to, to get them on that next path of the journey. Um, that's wonderful that you're doing yeah. that. Yeah. You know, as a retired military, you know, I did 26 years active duty and reserve. And so I know what it takes. Every time you get promoted, you go to a leadership class, right? You get promoted again, you go to a class and you've got all those inherent skills built in. So when I personally, when I looked at resumes, you know, even somebody who might not have the technical skills, but I know that they were in the military. I know all that other stuff that they bring to the table. And you know what? I'm willing to to put my money on that, even though they may not be 100% qualified. Maybe they're 25%, but I'm willing to go out on a limb because I know what they bring to the table as a team player and a leader. Exactly. And it, and it makes a difference. I mean, Petco, you know, you've you've worked with a lot of folks in, in that group and, you know, the sense of mission, too. I, I think mission is so critical key and, and so, so focused on outcomes and mission. Yet in the business side, you forget about the outcome. You focus on here's what I did or even I think it's built in, in a lot of ways with which outcome. Maria, I'm kind of curious. I mean, you can't we, we can't all ask you for resume help and everything else. And uh, but I. Are there any books you mentioned, Star Wars, why, that, you know, future CISOs, CIOs, or anyone that just wants to get into IT that's not there today that should be reading or should consider any book recommendations, basically? Oh, I don't. Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I bought the book, Start With Why. I bought like 100 copies of it and gave it to my entire um, team because I just thought it was that important to really think about why we did, why we were why we were going to undergo a huge transformation and, and really to put it front and center and not make assumptions. So I think, you know, start with why. And of course, there's a lot of other ones I've, you know, read over time, good to grade and, and things like that. Um, uh, there's just, there's just so many out there. I will tell you that over the last six months, I've been reading for pleasure, not so much um, the professional books of late. <laughs> but like I said, uh, start awesome. with why was re- is really top of mind for me. Awesome. Well, what are your fun books, if you don't mind me asking? I'm always looking for new books. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I um, I got uh, last year, The Wheel of Time came out on Amazon or whenever it came out. And I was looking, I watched it on Amazon. And I went, wow, this is actually kind of interesting. And then I learned that there's a whole series of books. Oh. So my, my normal genre is like Stephen King. I read a lot of that. But but I started reading The Wheel of Time. Wow. Um, start, and I am in book 10 right now. So I'm in the, <laughs> almost at the end of book 10. 
Um, so this 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 year, I've been um, uh, took a shift from you know all my technical reading, and I am reading for pleasure, and I am in book ten of Wheel of Time How right fun. now. <laughs> How fun! So I got a couple more volumes to go. Holy moly, book ten! <laughs> yeah. that is it is. It's a whole series. <laughs> yeah. I will have to check that out. I've, uh, I've been, it's hard to find a good book these days. I don't know. Cause I, you know, I love the thrillers as well. I, I love a really good thriller, yeah. murder mystery. Uh, and to do them well is hard, you know, with, where yeah, you don't know. This, this series out. just got me hooked. Uh-oh. Yep. It got me hooked. Nice. Okay. Well, I'm going to keep that in the write up too. I'll give folks a link to that so they can go check it out for some fun reading. <laughs> there's probably a hundred thousand there's all your listeners half of them are out there going how did you never hear of this right <laughs> i know i know that's hilarious but uh i did get um we uh we have peter singer peter w singer on uh a couple of weeks ago and i just got his book burning it's a techno thriller so i'm i'm really excited to to get that started because my, my private reading is, is like Dave Grohl's biography, you know, and then I go to the <laughs> type of thriller. But I love it because it just keeps your brain engaged. You know, anything that can be entertaining yep. but also learn a little something, I'm always there for that, thousand percent. So, well, thank you, Maria. I just want to be mindful of time. And, you know, I know we're coming up on it. And I just want to thank you so much. This has been so much fun and, and just so insightful for our listeners. And I just, it's, it's kind of like this beacon of hope right? An opportunity ahead when we think about, you know, government and security and what's, what's coming ahead. And, and there is that silver lining. And, and I, I think it is good. It's very positive, not negative. And, and that's what gets me excited in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rachel and Petco. I just, it's, there's so many opportunities out there. It's just, um, I, I can't list them all. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Wow. Good luck to you. I, I can't wait to hear what's next. And maybe, like I said, if there's a book in the future, I would 100% get on the pre-order list to read that because uh, I just there's there's so much goodness to share. Uh, and, and knowledge sharing is just invaluable, right, to folks as they're kind of looking looking ahead. So to all of our listeners, thanks again for joining us this week. Uh, until next time, be safe. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher. 